Welcome back to the program. Let's pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord our God, we praise you, we adore you, we love you. We bless you that you do watch over us. You do take care of us. Lord, you do give us guidance um, for different uh, parts uh, in our lives. And uh, and Lord, I just pray for, for provision for all of those listening. Lord, provision for each of you, dear sweet brothers and sisters in Christ, that whatever it is that's burdening you right now, whatever it is that you're seeking insight on, that the Lord would give you light. The Lord would give you guidance. Uh, Lord, I ask, I pray for those who are in puzzling situations, who are in troubling situations, and who do not know the way. Lord, we do believe in you, but it's hard to believe when we don't see any forward progress or when we see things getting worse. Lord, let us lean on your word. Let us find sources of encouragement. And uh, Lord, just help us to continue to grow, to fight the good fight, to... Uh, to recognize that you are calling us to stand up and to be witnesses to the faith we've been given. Like, give us the courage to do that, the, the courage to, uh, to proclaim your greatness, Lord, your greatness, Lord. And we make this prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I'm excited over the last couple of days, I had a chance to visit with, I don't know, five or six different families that are in this area. And the the common theme of these families that I visited is that, I don't know if you want to call, I think we've started to call them um, refugees and exiles. <laughs> these are all families that have discerned in the last year to actually in the last six months, uh, they've made a discernment about what they needed to do in order to follow the Lord and fulfill their call as husbands and wives and as parents with regards to their kids. And uh, each of them um, had contacted me. I had reached out with them and, and talked with them and prayed with them over Zoom. The, that's one of the gifts of technology is that people have definitely in the last two years become more familiar with and comfortable with connecting with each other over live video platforms like Zoom. And um, the purpose for them to reach out to me is that obviously they hear me talking about uh, making that journey um, uh, over to Eastern Washington and uh, a lot of the life we live in Northern Idaho. And in reaching out to me, they uh, each brought the distinctiveness of their situation you know, none of them had the same exact situation, but they had a common concern. I just want to glorify God in my life, and I want my kids, I want my kids to be healthy and happy and holy, uh, and I'm just so concerned about what's happening here, and I want to find a place where there's uh, faith and freshness and, and, and life for my kids and protection from, from crazy and from toxic and from diabolical, right? These sorts of things. And, and each of them ended up making the decision to say, I'm, I want to come over and see. I want to come and see um, what it's like over there and, and ended up um, coming and spending some time with me and my family and we showed them around and then I ended up serving them as a real estate agent. And that was the purpose of the videos. So the purpose of the videos was for them to give a testimony for the ways in which 
my service to them as a real estate agent, whether it was in Washington or Idaho, whether it was Spokane or whether it was in the Coeur d'Alene Post Falls area, or even in in a few cases helping them sell their homes on the up in Anacortes and North Bend and Kirkland, um, folks who have said, "Hey, you can help me. You know the West Side so well. You know the Puget Sound area so well. Um, can you serve us over here?" And I said, "Absolutely." Anyways, um, it was a beautiful opportunity for them to to share, and two things came from it. The first was um, this tremendous sense of gratitude to the Lord, tremendous sense of gratitude to the Lord for um, where he had brought them, where he had brought them, and and the experience of the life that they were living now. That was the first part. The second part was um, the tremendous hunger to praise God, the deep desire to gather together with others to fellowship around faith and worship God and grow in faith together. And uh, that was, it was wonderful. And a couple of these people like, I just, I want to tell the story. I want to tell my story of God's generosity and his mercy and and tell the story of what it was like to work with me and all that. Anyway, so um, that's going to, those videos will soon be posted um, on my real estate website, which I'll tell you about later. Um, but uh, just to say, if you are interested in uh, making the move, if you're in the west side, if you're in the Puget Sound area or in Yakima or wherever you're hearing my voice and you're like, I really want to consider Spokane and Coeur d'Alene. I want to consider moving over there. Please be in touch. I would love to be of service to you. Whether or not I serve you as an agent, I can still be of service to you. There are people who contact me. Um, they already have agents they're working with, and I still meet with them online. I pray with them. I talk with them about parishes and schools. I learn about what they're looking for in terms of families. I connect them to other families. I give them a sense where those families are living. And it's just a, um, you know, it's like like a full meal deal. It's like making a move like that is so hard because you're uprooting and then you want to take root. You want to take root in the right place with the right strategy. And so I, I've become pretty good at it <laughs> over the last two and a half years. Um, so the greatness of God freeing folks from desperate circumstances. I bring that up. Oh, oh, if you want to be in touch with me, go to mycatholicfaith.org. If you go to that website, mycatholicfaith.org, you can get in touch with me right there. Easy way to um, connect with me and just say, hey, Tom, I'd love to connect with you and uh, and, and take advantage of that opportunity to, to pray, to discern, and if yes, you end up deciding to move, and yes, I can serve you as a realtor in Washington or Idaho, love to do that too. So mycatholicfaith.org. Okay, uh, beginning next week, the website will be done, and so I'll, be, uh, I'll actually be a sponsor of my own program. So you'll hear sponsor mentions of my um, services as a realtor. So I'm excited for you all to hear me in a little bit more of a formal, uh, uh, formal way. Um, and point you to a website where you can, um, you know, actually see the testimonies of, of folks who've worked with me. So I'm excited for that. Okay. This morning, so this is Tuesday night, I'm recording this. This morning, going through the Office of Readings, it was about the greatness of God. It was how great is our God. But it was also about what I just shared with you in the program. It was about people who felt stuck, crying out help 
feeling desperate, trying to figure out, God, what's the next thing for me? What do I need to do to, to, to support, encourage, and hold my family accountable to our call? How do I fulfill my call? Right? All of that. And it just, I, I got to say this. I've said this before, but I, I, I just, it strikes me almost every morning when I'm reading the Office of Readings. How does a priest or religious or anyone who's committed to the Office of Readings pray the, these psalms, these, this Word of God? Because the Word of God has power. You read the Word of God, it strikes you. Well, let me say that again. You read the Word of God, it has the potential. It has the possibility of striking the core of your being. And that means breaking the, the center of our being open, our heart, because our hearts can be hardened to God's word. We can become so familiar with God's word that it's, yeah, I've read that every four weeks I'm reading that. It's a four-week cycle in the Liturgy of the Hours. It doesn't really mean that much to me. Or the hardness of our own situation where we don't have that sensitivity that this is God's word, meaning it's a living word, and that somehow the Lord is serving up this living word to me right now because I, in my role as a spiritual father, am called upon to be drawn into solidarity, into compassionate union with I am called to become in some way the manifestation and, and intercessor for those who are in that condition if I'm not. Did you hear that? See, because when you read the Psalms, and especially the Psalms in the Office of Readings, you're going to read Psalms about people who are in distinct existential circumstances. Their circumstances are dire, often, often, often. When you read the Office of Readings, Again, remember now, why is that? What's the genius of the Liturgy of the Hours? The Office of Readings would traditionally be read around four or five in the morning. And I want to ask you the question, who's getting, who is up at four or five in the morning and can't fall back asleep? Who's up at four and five in the morning and turning to God? What does a prayer sound like from you in your life when you're up at four in the morning, three in the morning? I know what it is in my life. If I wake up at four in the morning and I can't fall back asleep, it's not just, oh, I need a drink of water, um, or I just happen to wake up because of a sound and fall right back asleep. If there's something when I wake up and it's keeping me awake and it is energizing me in a way that says I can't fall back asleep, it's because I'm desperate. It's because I'm feeling out of control. It's because I can't see the way forward. And so, does that, does that make sense to you? Does that strike you as, as oh yeah, uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> even if that doesn't happen to you at four in the morning, do you remember the times in your life when you have felt that sense of desperation? What does that sound like? And, and what do you do about it? And this is a very, very important point. What do we do in our spiritual lives? What do we do as Catholics when we are, in a situation that is, from an emotional standpoint, overwhelming. When you're just feeling overwhelmed. And that feeling of overwhelmed is often associated with being anxious, feeling afraid, feeling powerless. And that's where that sense of being 
out of control is. What do you do? How do you take that and bring it to your relationship with the Lord? That's not easy. Because when, when, when you're overwhelmed, when, well, I'll speak for myself, when I'm overwhelmed, anxious, afraid, feeling powerless, out of control to address the, 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 the throbbing trial, difficulty, or situation that I'm facing, one of the hardest things to do is to approach the Lord with a sense of peaceful articulation, being able to state with clarity and with confidence Lord, this is where I'm at. Well, this is where the Word of God comes in. This is where God's Word, God can lend you His Word. His Word can carry your heart. His Word can carry your life. His Word can carry your condition. And so when you turn to Him by reading, for instance, Psalm 102, it was the psalm from the Office of Readings on Tuesday of week four, which is where we're at in the four-week Psalter of the Liturgy of the Hours. When you do that, you're letting God's Word be more than just a human word. You're allowing God to speak His Word into your situation. One of the great, amazing gifts of God's Word among many, is that when God speaks his word into your life and when his word is a a bright shining illumination and articulation of your condition, all of a sudden, by just allowing his word through the words of the psalm to be the expression that you are actually feeling, there's tremendous power in that. Because whether you know it or not, it's a kind of communion in the darkness. There's a union with the Lord in the darkness that the words are conveying. You are at a, at a hidden level, maybe, or a hidden at a non-felt level, being drawn into a reality where the Lord is saying, "I'm with you. I'm with you in the darkness. I'm with you in the desolation." I'm with you in the powerlessness. I'm with you in the, the time of deprivation, of tremendous suffering, and of anxiety and even desperation. I am with you. And my brothers and sisters, we don't want to be in those circumstances. We don't want to be in that kind of place in our lives. But when we are, when we know we can lean on God's word to speak into our hearts a word that enlightens us to the truth, that he is with us in the middle of that, then all of a sudden we're buoyed, we're strengthened. We have a sustenance to go on. And I'll go on in a minute on Sound Insight. Reading God's Word is powerful. Being served up God's Word in the Liturgy of the Hours is a way in which we are looking to the church to provide us with guidance the church providing with us a sense of saying, you don't have to figure out what psalm to pray today. Just come and join in on this psalm. Come and join in on the this portion of the divine office, the liturgy, the hours, and you will be drawn into the prayer of Christ the priest because it's liturgical prayer, but he is praying in his body. He's drawing his body into 
a union with the Father, into union with the Trinity through the praying of the Office of Readings. And so let me just read. I'll read it quickly, but I want you to—you saw the the wind-up that I did, because I know that there are some out there that are maybe feeling overwhelmed, a little bit desolate, a little bit desperate, anxious, etc. Listen to the Office of Readings. Now, I want you to hear it. It's God's Word. Lord Jesus, please, I beg you, as I read Psalm 102, please may your Holy Spirit stir within us a sense of light. I pray and I beg, Holy Spirit, that you would stir within us a sense that this is a living Word from God, an inspired Word from God, and that, Lord, we welcome your Word into our hearts. Lord, we say, make a home for your Word in our hearts. Lord, prepare a place in our hearts to receive the Word that you will speak to us now. Lord, uh, carve out room, expand Expand the space in our soul to receive in a fuller way your word. And may your word implant itself and imprint itself in our lives so that we too in some way may become the word that we hear. That we would become in some way the word that we recite. Amen. Okay, here we go. I'm praying for my prayer. Okay, so this is Psalm 102. It's the longings and prayers of an exile. That's the title of the psalm. The longings and prayers of an exile. And then there's a quote from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. God comforts us in all our troubles. Now listen to this, because this can be the Lord giving you words for your life. And if it's not, where you're at in your life right now, you know what? You welcome this word into your heart. It's not that you're going to all of a sudden like, oh, I don't want to pray this psalm because then my life will go bad. No, 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 no. The Lord will be bringing you into compassionate solidarity with those who are. Let me say that again. This word will either or both express your condition or bring you into compassionate intercessory solidarity with those who are. I'll say that phrase one more time. This word from God will either express your condition and in doing so, bring you into an experience of union with the Lord in the dark. Or if life is going well and you're like, that is not me, Tom. That is not my condition. It will bring you into compassionate, profound solidarity with those who are, leading you to intercede for them. Okay, here's the psalm. O Lord, listen to my prayer and let my cry for help reach you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Turn your ear towards me and answer me quickly when I call, for my days are vanishing like smoke. My bones burn away like a fire. My heart is withered like the grass. I forget to eat my bread. I cry with all my strength and my skin clings to my bones. I have become like a pelican in the wilderness, like an owl in desolate places. I lie awake and I moan like some lonely bird on a roof. 
All day long my foes revile me. Those who hate me use my name as a curse. The bread I eat is ashes. My drink is mingled with tears. In your anger, Lord, and your fury, you have lifted me up and thrown me down. My days are like a passing shadow, and I wither away like the grass." Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Isn't that so striking? That you pray that psalm, that psalm of desperation, that psalm of desolation, that psalm of powerlessness. It's the prayer of groaning. It's the prayer of groaning. Bonaventure, it's the beginning of all prayer. Is the Augustine, the cry for help. All prayer is a gift from God. Bonaventure, the, the beginning of all prayer, the launching point is, is this desire, but it's the desire that is a groan because we're empty and desperate. We're utterly poor and we cry out to the Lord. It doesn't end there, but that's where it begins. And, I mean, do you hear this? My heart's withered away like grass. I forget to eat my bread. I lie awake and I moan. The bread I eat is ashes. Drink, uh, my drink is mingled with tears. Uh, and, and it just goes on. I forget to eat my bread. Isn't that true? When you're overwhelmed, you just, you're not even hungry. So there are some who are in this condition. There are some for whom this word can be a tremendous comfort. I was, I met with a widow last week and she mentioned that as her husband was dying, of COVID, that the comfort she found in prayer was in the prayer of surrender. Father Delindo Ruotolo, she went to that novena and just continued to pray that prayer, which again is so beautiful because what does it do? In its own way, it's it's not an inspired word of God. It's an inspiring prayer from a very holy priest of God of the last century, an Italian priest. And I, I think he had the stigmata. I, I've heard that. I, I haven't studied about his life enough, but boy, I love the prayer. And it's that, Jesus, I surrender myself to you. You take over. Jesus, I abandon myself to you. Take care of everything. Right? It's so what? It's existentially, com- there's something very complete about that, that just giving over when you've got nothing left. But you pray this prayer enough and you'll find it comforting because you'll know that you're not alone. You'll know that God gets it. You'll know that the Lord is saying, I I understand your circumstance. Listen, read this inspired word. It's my word and my word will live in you as you're in this situation. You will know that you're not alone. And that's one of the biggest things we need because when we are in the dark, what does that mean? We lost a sense of the light of God. We've lost a sense of the presence of God. We feel like we're all alone, that God has turned his back on us. He's ignoring us. Or we doubt, we can doubt so deeply and painfully whether there is a living God or a God who cares about us. So you pray that prayer, you pray that psalm with sincerity, with a degree of uh, focus and, and devotion. It'll be powerful as a source of comfort. And what's the big and? 
Well, frankly, most priests who pray this prayer are not in this situation. But if they pray this prayer with that sense of urgency and even, even beg the Lord, Lord, I want this prayer to carve a home in my heart. I want my life in some ways to be a demonstration of Psalm 102. Pray that. Pray that. Because if we become that word, even though at a human level, at a measured level, at a visible level, we're not in a circumstance like Psalm 102, like what I just read, you know what we will have? Remember what those words were? Compassionate intercessory solidarity. Compassionate intercessory solidarity. If we're not in the situation, we will be brought into solidarity, into an intimate, hidden, invisible union that is a suffering with, that has a meaningful impact on our lives, where we begin to feel their suffering, sense and know in a hidden, invisible way their suffering that leads us to pray for them, to sacrifice for them, to do penance for them, to cry out to God for them. We can't just peacefully live our lives alone. That, that's the alternative. Really, the, those are, or the, the third alternative is you become numb to it. Just out of repetition, oh yeah, I'm familiar with this psalm. I've prayed every four weeks. I've done it for years or decades. And yeah, it's, it's God's word. Right, I get it. Oh yeah, and there are people in the world like this. Yeah, but it doesn't, it doesn't become a word that owns my life. Ooh, not a word that I own, but a word that takes ownership of my life. I bring this up for a reason. And the reason is this. If we let God's word take ownership of our lives, if we let God's word find a home in our hearts and we say, Lord, I want to become this word either because it'll express in a beautiful way the union of God's word in my life, what I'm experiencing, or it'll bring me, remember what it is? Let's say it again. Compassionate intercessory solidarity with those who are. We won't live our lives in this independent way, in a way that is not caring, in a way that is... Uh, just enjoying life on my own. No, there's something deeper that the Lord wants for us, wills for us, has for us, and it comes from God's Word. It comes from the Word of God making a home in our hearts. So if you have a bit of courage to say, Lord, let the Word become flesh in me. Let the Word become flesh in me after the image of the Blessed Mother as the model disciple, as the exemplar, as the perfect model of how we ought to be open to the Holy Spirit, implanting the Word of God in our lives by analogy, not, of course, in the same way, by analogy, not in course, in the same way, God's Word will find a home in our heart, and our, our flesh, our lives, will be a place for God's Word to find a home. But the psalm is not done. It's not done yet. There's more here. And I wanna um I wanna just go to the to the end. The second part, there's three parts to the psalm. The second part talks about so the first part is about the the groaning of the situation of the man. The second is that there are others that are around him, the psalmist, who are like flourishing and Lord, 
Like, I'm down in the dust. And they seem to be having, like, good things happening to them. But, Lord, I know that a time will come. There'll be an appointed time where you will move with pity for us and that others will glorify you as they see what you do in us. And I know there will come a time when you will be glorified in me in a way that brings me unbridled joy. I'm no longer groaning in the dust, waking up at four in the morning and crying out, God, what, where are you and what are you doing? But there will be an Easter Sunday. And that leads to the third part of the psalm, which is super close, super close. And it, uh, sorry, it, um, it, so short, <laughs> close. Um, and it, uh, it brings up a, a very simple but profound point that at the end of the time of um, being ground down, feeling that sense of nothing, um, it says it, and it says it actually more clearly and beautifully in Psalm 73, which was Monday's Office of Readings. And it says this, And so when my heart grew embittered, and when I was cut to the quick, I was stupid and did not understand, no better than a beast in your sight. Yet I was always in your presence. You were holding me by my right hand. You will guide me by your counsel, and so you will lead me to glory. What else have I in heaven but you? Apart from you, I want nothing on earth. My body and my heart faint for joy. God is my possession forever. That, that's where we want to end up, right? So God's word describes in these office of readings, not only what it's like to be in that prayer of desperation, but it also describes the outcome that the Lord comes and he does um, bring someone from the dust to victory. He does raise to life. He does lead to victory. And really, probably most important of all is what? I was always in your presence you were holding me by my right hand. You'll guide me by your counsel and you will lead me to glory. So those are truths that are so again, powerfully important for us in our daily lives to know that even in the midst of those dark times that we're in his presence, even in those most troubling of times, you were holding me by my right hand. You will be guiding me by your counsel, and you will bring me to your glory. Those truths, we need to continue to let those wash over us, be sown into us, wash over us, be sown into us, so that we can, um, we can live this life of faith with a sense that we're in the presence of the living God, the living God who sees our sufferings and responds just like he did by sending Moses to free his people in Egypt, sending Jesus to free us from sin, death, and hell. He's with us with his spirit. He is with us. Back in a minute. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Kern. It's great to be with you today. 
So today in the program, I'm talking about how great is our God. How great is our God? And, you know, I was um, I was at, on Tuesday night, last night, I was at the sports banquet um, at the Oaks where our kids go to school. Um, and so it's our, and it was the sports banquet for uh, the high school teams. And so I did have four kids there, two boys and two girls that had played on a sport that they were honoring during the course of that, that they were honoring the sports happening throughout the year. So they were honoring um, soccer and volleyball and basketball and um, what else? Volleyball, basketball, soccer. I think those were the three sports they honored. Yeah. Those, so those are the three sports they honored. And uh, I, I could go on about just, like the blessing it is to have these coaches, um, the athletic director and these coaches who just each spoke so beautifully from their heart about the Lord and about how sports are about glorifying God, about glorifying God in the lives of the kids. It's not, first of all, about winning and trophies, uh, but it's about competing. And um, it was beautiful. They, there was this like really... There was a neat reflection. This talk given by the uh, the minister, uh, that the family minister, um, who also teaches, and he talked about uh, like this conundrum that we often face uh, as coaches or as parents in sports, which is how do you uh, how do you help your son or daughter to uh, perform at their highest level, be super competitive without making winning the, the be all end all. And, um, he brought up a couple of, he brought up a bunch of points, but a couple of the things that I found most profound was that the idea of mastery that's involved here is yes, you want to master your opponent and come out victorious, but oftentimes what sports does is that it, in a non-war like war setting, and that was the historical context, that in the absence of war, where are you going to help foster courage and determination and self-mastery in young people? And one of the answers that was found by the Greeks and, and adopted in, in history was athletic competitions. It was an opportunity to perform against others, and to seek to compete and to be victorious. Um, but what was identified and what is a, oh yeah, that's true, is that a lot of what can hold back um, a, a young man or a young woman, an athlete, from performing at their, base, at their best is a lack of interior self-mastery. So that the idea of mastering your opponent goes hand in hand with the idea of self-mastery, mastering yourself. Well, what is it that you're seeking to master in yourself uh, as part of this uh, athletic uh, competitive environment? And it's this, and this is a subtle lane to stay in, but I loved it, and it's this. You can compete at a high level and seek to overcome your opponent, not your enemy, your opponent. You can seek to win without departing from 
virtuous self-mastery. Okay, what does that mean? Well, simply put, it means this. You can win with a good attitude or a bad attitude. You can win in a way that helps you grow as a godly and authentically human, uh, 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 an authentic human, <laughs> a godly young man or woman, or a, you know an excellent young man or woman. Um, or you can win, you can overcome your competition, but do so in a way that leaves you a lesser person. You end up a lesser person as a result of the interior lack of self-mastery. Meaning what? Well, interiorly, if we're choosing to engage in the sports in a way that says, I really despise my opponent. I want to crush my opponent. I want to do everything to demoralize and diminish them as part of the uh, the value of playing this uh, this game right now. That I'm going to use that means in any means necessary to reach was staying within the rules, the external visible rules to win the game because that's the purpose of the game on the court, the visible, measurable, bodily self-mastery that's required to be victorious is what? It's all the discipline of working out, exercising, perfecting the skills, like all of those things, right? So for the bodily mastery, uh, then even combine that with the strategic mastery of the coach and the team and motivating them to win the game. But then you have the other the other side, which is the soul, the mastery that's internal. And if you foster an internal sense of self-mastery that is godly, then that can manifest itself at the same time with the external, visible, bodily form. And for me, what was the way that the Oaks like puts that forward in terms of end of the year awards is they give out three awards on each of the teams and pay attention to the order of the awards, right? So the typical order of the awards is most improved player, most valuable player, and then the Christian spirit award. Now, how cool is that? I think that is awesome because it's saying by even just the order of presentation, we're moving to the culminating, the the highest value award, right? So the highest value award is not who's the most valuable player because that, that can be the external mastery. Yeah, you scored a lot of points or scored a lot of goals, Um and yeah, you were certainly valuable to the team from that standpoint, but what about as a person? What did you as a person contribute to the team? Did you inspire enthusiasm, selflessness, a team spirit, camaraderie, and uh, authentic ways of, of treating your opponents with a sense of Christian spirit? Uh what did you, how did you help elevate the whole atmosphere in the team, in the room, by how it is you showed up and what you did? That they elevate that in a higher way. That, what does that do? It's, it's washing over the kids. It's telling the kids something. And then just to, again, to hear the way that the athletic director and the coaches talk about it, it's so refreshing. And it's talking about what? 
the way that authentic human greatness also is glorifying the greatness of God. That authentic human greatness will also glorify God. So that means both the, what, the internal and the external. It means more than just having external glory because we won the tournament. But if the ones who won the tournament are a team that nobody likes because of their nasty attitude, you know, let's just toss in the parents <laughs> and, the, and the way the coach is coached, then, okay, yeah, okay, we acknowledge it. You won the trophy, but you didn't win as human beings. You didn't win any minds or hearts. And the funny thing is, is that you say that to, to that kind of team and they probably like, you're a sore sport. You just, you don't care. <laughs> well, we'll give you the, uh, we'll give you the uh, miscongeniality award. Okay. Here, here's your, here's your ribbon. And, and it's, uh, <laughs> so I love a healthy ideal to pursue. And uh, last night or Tuesday night, and when I'm recording this, I just came from this sports banquet that was in my humble opinion, honoring to God, honoring to the place that sports and athletic competitions can have in our life of faith and in our schools. And I got to see a a school that got it right, got it right in terms of presenting ideals about the way in which faith is even at the center of and so fundamentally integral to um how sports are done. And at the high school level, I've just never seen that before. I mean, I was at Kennedy and they had really good athletic teams, but not this Christian spirit. Not, no, it was, it was, I'm trying to remember how many coaches were Catholic, practicing Catholic or expressive of faith in, in almost any of the settings that I'd seen them in. No, it was about winning and it was about winning, not even with the measure of, the kind of ideals that you'd want to foster in the kids. It was a take no prisoners kind of thing. And, you know, it's about winning, right? And that's so sad. Our kids deserve so much better. They just do. God is great. All right, when we come back, uh, a further reflection that uh, dawned on me. Uh, as Well, I'll, I'll share with you in a minute on Sound Insight. Welcome back to Sound Insight. I'm going to share with you about the greatness of God uh, by offering you a, let's call it a spiritual theological speculation that uh, came back to my mind uh, as a result of a conversation I was having with one of my sons who asked asked me, Dad, he said, Dad, do you think that um, we'll be alive when Jesus comes again? Do you think we're close to the end of the world? And I said, I had uh, three answers for him. The first answer was, I hope so. (laughs) And and I say that not um, as a pessimist, not as a cynic, not as someone who hates the world in terms of God's creation or the life that I have. I don't mean it like that at all, honestly. But I love Jesus. Jesus coming back is not a threat to this world. If there's a reason why I would want Jesus to hold off, it's so that we, the church, 
could do more to proclaim Jesus to the world. That we, the church, can proclaim to people, get right with God, that the Lord is the path to life. The Lord himself is the way, the truth, and the life. Um, it would be all about what St. Paul talked about, you know, dying and going to heaven is the better part, but staying alive means productive labor. That's what I want. I want productive labor if Jesus uh, does not return during my lifetime. Okay, that's the first. Uh, the second was not a point I, I made to him uh, at any length because I'd shared with him before, and that is every age had their prophets who, even even saints, who said, we're definitely living in the final age. The We're definitely living in the time of uh, the Antichrist and the second coming. Uh, in fact, if you read the Office of Readings in this Easter season, uh, right now what we're reading um, is the book of Revelation, which I think we just got through the Antichrist uh, portion of things, coming to deceive even the believers and how many are going to have to stand and, and fight and be martyred uh, uh, as witnesses to faith in Christ. So it's interesting that that's, that's, that's the reading right now in the, in the Office of Readings. Um, and then the third reason was, I said, I've heard one of the, re- it was a, I can't, to be honest with you, remember which theologian said it. And it was, it was essentially, here's the point. I, I, I'm not going to quote, I'm not quoting anybody, but here's how I'm going to say it, is that um, their reason to believe that we are not close to the second coming is that we haven't even got off the planet, that we are only barely scratching the surface regarding understanding the bigness of the universe. With the uh, advance uh, in optics and telescopes and uh, I don't even want to use phrases, but technology to allow us to see further and deeper into the universe, the bigger, the the sense of being, and the ability to convey in uh, on video, uh, you know, the ways of, of describing just how big the universe is, what does that do? It points us to God. It points us to God's creative power. It points us to God's infinite majesty, God's infinite power, that God's divine creativity is infinite. And so God's creative power is so much bigger than we can imagine. And I've, I've read, I don't know, I, again, I don't remember who it was. It was, again, this is speculative theology, right? So this is not dogma. This is not church teaching. But it's, well, what do you know about God? What do you see in the scriptures? And is there, a, is there any path for a deeper insight into the scripture uh, through the unfolding of human history and technology. And so the, with the advent of this advanced technology, we're seeing and, and experiencing in deeper ways the bigness of, of the universe that 
is an image of God in one way, and so it gives us a sense of the bigness of God. Well, in the scriptures, Jesus talks about there are uh, there there's a flock or there are flocks that you don't know about, right? So there, there, there. You know, you are my sheep, and 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 I'm I'm here to save you, but there are sheep that are part of the flock that you don't know. It's in John 10, like verse 16, where he says, I have sheep that are not part of this flock that are part of another flock that I also must bring into this fold, uh, into my fold. And, uh, you know, commentators would ordinarily say, well, he's referring to the Gentiles that um, are not part of God's people. And that's part of the expansion of the extent of the covenant and and uh, an insight into the, the new covenant. But others say, you know, he could be referring to, and this is, again, speculative theology, that the creator God is not limited in his own power or creativity to one universe. This isn't multiverses. This isn't like there are 50 U's or 500 U's or 5 million U's. No, that there's like a whole other universe and there is a universe, you know, it's like how many billions and billions of stars are there? How many universes can God create? He's infinite. He's eternal. He's big. He's not limited in his power regarding, man, I can't keep all these universes spinning, right? There are limits to how many balls you can spin on your finger at a time or on fingers at a time. But there's no limit to how many, literally, acts of creation that God can make. This is how big God is. And when you start pondering the bigness of God, when you start contemplating God, especially by doing things like going out into the night sky, you can begin to feel just how small our life is. It didn't say unimportant. It didn't say it didn't matter. That's the stunning reality about God is that he's your father and that he knows every hair in your head and that he loves you in an intimate, personal, profound way. You in an intimate, personal, profound way. And so the idea that this God, this amazing God, has such a love for you that he um, that he would um, create you and hold you in existence and commit an unending life to you is spectacular. And this is the God that we are called upon to uh, witness to, to stand up for. And I think that here's what I found. The more we let God's word gets sown in our hearts, first part of the program, the more that we contemplate the bigness of God, this most recent part of the program, the more that we'll find courage to stand up and face the enemies of God in this world, in our lives, in the right now moment that we're facing. God will need warriors, prayer warriors, prayer warriors who will pray fiercely and stand up vigorously for the least, the lost, and the last. There has been an exposure 
in the last week or two of just how ugly and dark pro-abortion people can be can be just how ugly their beliefs are with regards to what should happen to the innocent human life in the womb of the mother how they will deceive how they will uh, misconstrue how they will uh, uh, become extraordinarily uh, hyperbolic in what they say in order to keep the innocent slaughter of babies in their mother's wombs legal at the federal level. It is an unmasking. It is an unmasking. And we saw, actually, we barely saw any of it on mainstream media, the way that the firebombing of a a Christian counseling center, the demonstrations inside and outside of Catholic churches that were just plainly disgusting, the fervent uh, gatherings uh, and statements of saying, here's where the justices of the Supreme Court live. Let's go pressure them. Let's go put the pressure on so that they will not go forward and overturn Roe versus Wade better be praying for our justices that they do what is right in conscience and in law and overturn Roe versus Wade. And we better be ready to stand up for the truth about life. I talked recently about standing up for the truth about the innocence of children and the diabolic disorienting evil of transgender ideology as expressed in comprehensive sex education happening in our public schools in the state of Washington and beyond. It needs courageous witnesses, and we won't have that unless we want God's word in our lives. We recognize God's bigness, and we're willing to stand up. God bless your day.